Welcome back everyone to R2Cast number 24. That's us now in December. We started this in January, almost at the year point, and it's been a, a fantastic year. Absolutely love doing it and, and appreciate the support. We've got one more left uh, in two weeks' time, or is it a week's time? I can't remember. Uh, I think it's a week's time so we could get it in before Christmas. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for all the support over the past year. It's been great. Today, we have a really interesting guest and a really special guest in, in my head as well. And the reason I say that is, I've just seen this to, to the guy before. Podcasting's all a thing we all know about, a thing that is all over the world now. The but the guest today is the person who runs my favourite podcast. I've been listening to it for two or three years now. Um, it's called the Future, Future of Agriculture podcast, which we'll get into later on. But today we've got Tim. If you want to say hello there, Tim. Hello, Wallace and uh, audience. It's great to be here. Yeah, so as, as, as Tim's saying there, um, <clears throat> um, it's, it's re- I'm actually really looking forward to seeing what a chat about between two hosts of podcasts and sort of similar sectors is like. I mean, this guy is the king, not just saying this <laughs> so he can share it or whatever. I really do think that um, I, 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 I sort of base a lot of my podcast style off him. Uh, I'm still getting there, <laughs> slowly but surely. Uh, and I should say, just because as you guys know, sort of normally a month or two forward, just with work being busy and stuff like that, I've, I've kind of got to. So we're filming this in October. Um, it's not quite snowing yet, but it has been torrential rain today. Uh, enough of me though, uh, Tim, could you just tell us a bit about your background? Was was agriculture there? Was agriculture always for you? <clears throat> yeah, agriculture's kind of been there really as, as long as I can remember, right? But uh, in a little bit different sense than a lot of people. So I'm in the U.S., uh, I grew up in, in Northern California and I grew up on just five acres. So very small um, farm, not not large at all, not something that at the time we were able to make a full-time income from. But my dad uh, had grown up on a goat dairy and it always had livestock. And so I grew up around around livestock. Uh, we ended up starting a, um, a business that served the ethnic markets in the area. Um, Northern California is a really diverse area around San Francisco and the Bay Area. And so we sold um, basically pig and goats to Hispanic markets and then ducks to Asian markets. And um, so from a very early age, in fact, my dad had me start learning uh, Spanish when I was in second grade so that I could help with the sales of of the livestock uh, to to customers who only spoke Spanish. So my background, it's pretty unique agriculture, but that's always been been a part of uh, been a part of things. In fact, I was just remembering because my daughter just turned eight. When I was eight, my dad and I went on a cross-country road trip to buy, uh, to buy pigs. And so we, uh, I got my ninth birthday was on the road to Oklahoma in, in the Midwest of, of uh, the U.S. And, and uh, anyway, just always been a part of, of me and, and uh, happy to be able to spend my career here as well. You're right when you say unique. That's that's very unique. Um, yeah. Just just out of interest, on that small, small sort of acres there, Tim, how many pigs, ducks and that were you were you having? Oh boy. So, uh, it varied from time to time, but at the, at our peak, uh, in terms of pigs, we were up to 55 sows. Uh, we ended up renting a second location for that. And then, um, ducks was kind of my project in high school. Uh, I ended up at, at the peak was raising a hundred ducks a month. So we would buy them as day old ducks and we, we, we would buy these hybrid Pekin ducks that took 60 days to be fully feathered. So really fast growing ducks and then would sell them live, um, to, uh, to, you know, people who, who wanted to, to kind of do everything themselves, but, you know, the certain Asian cultures, um, you know, they love duck and they love to, you know, for everything, football games, um, 
whatever the case may be, they want to have a duck and actually process it and cook it themselves. So we sold a lot of ducks. And, you know, <clears throat> when I, I was mentioning to you before we kicked off the recording there, I did uh, my master's in food security, which was up in uh, Glasgow. And uh, there was 23 of us in the, in the course, 17 of which were from China. Mm. And uh, they, they, I helped them a bit sort of doing some translating of sort of a bit more advanced words. Now, these guys started this course having done no English apart from the odd bit in school at master's level, which blew my mind that they could do that. But in return for the, me helping them sort of with those sort of like more advanced words sort of going into Latin and stuff like that, um, they took me to, to, a, to a traditional Chinese restaurant. And the thing that I really loved was they waste nothing. Mm. You know, we're quite bad for chucking out stuff uh, in the UK here. I mean, we're, our wastage is about 33%. Yeah. They, they were eating the feet. They were eating everything. The, the, bills, the bills were mashed up. It was fantastic. I thought it was excellent. Yeah, um, in fact, that's what a lot of our business came from, the fact that they could go buy a, you know, they could go buy duck meat at the store, but they wanted everything. They wanted every aspect yeah. of it for, for their various dishes. So it's pretty cool. It's brilliant, actually. It's, it, we should take a, a page out of their book in that regard, to be honest. Right. Um, so you grew up on a farm, a very interesting setup. It's, a, it's not one you would consider often, and you guys have made from sort of not a lot of, of, of ground there turned a, a business out of that, which is excellent. You also, I'm aware you went into agricultural education. So I take it after school, you went on to college or university. Can you tell us just a bit about that, and what, what you studied there, Tim? Yeah, sure. So, you know, here we've got an organization called uh, FFA, which which originally stood for Future Farmers of America, although they've expanded the definition into other aspects of agriculture, not just farming. But um, I was elected to a position there, which actually required me to take a year off and uh, represent the organization nationwide. So after high school, I took a year off. And um, really, that's that is re really what broadened my view of agriculture beyond the five acres I grew up in to like what was out there and learned about technology and all the things that were happening in uh, crop science. And that's what actually inspired me to uh, I changed my major. So before that, I was an agriculture education major. I wanted to teach. And then after that, I thought, oh, wow, there's so much cool stuff happening in crop, you know, in crops and crop science. And so I changed my major to crop science, went to UC Davis in California and um thought I was going to, by the end of college, I thought I was going to go work as an orchard manager. I really just loved permanent crops and tree crops. And I thought I would go work as a farm manager. Um, but my girlfriend at the time, now wife, um, decided to go to veterinary school in Texas. And um, there are orchards in Texas, just not nearly as many as in California. So I ended up getting into the grain industry. And that's where I spent the first eight years of my career buying and selling grain and feed ingredients and, and managing facilities for that. It should be mentioned, uh, Tim's lovely wife does have a connection to Scotland as well. Um, <laughs> does. Yeah, she went to high school in Aberdeen and she remembers it fondly and tells me I would fit right in if I were just go and spend a week, you know, going from pub to pub or distillery to distillery, uh, that I would just love it. Well, I'm from an island off Aaron, uh, off Scotland called Aaron. Uh, feel free to come over whenever. Um, the orchard's an interesting one. Um, was there any specific, uh, my, my orchard knowledge is minimal, specific orchards, was that apples or what, what were you sort of looking at? 
Well, so I came from where I grew up is, is wine country. It's Sonoma County, California. So, so a lot of vineyards. And so I was somewhat familiar with vineyards, but yeah, in California, um, almond orchards have really, have really taken over There's by far the most acreage of any of the tree crops in California. Um, so that's a big one, but yeah, I was, I was interested in, in all of them. I didn't really specify fruit. There's so many different types in California. So you got, you know, almonds, pistachios, uh, peaches, citrus, all sorts of different, uh, upper cherries, um, I, I had taken every sort of orchard related class that I could. So a lot of pests and diseases, and, but I really love the field cl classes where I could get out and learn pruning and uh, all of the interesting aspects of permanent crops. So yeah, I was, I was kind of, I was really into it and um, you know, still someday, hope, hopefully I can work on an orchard or hopefully own my own orchard someday, but uh, I, it's just always been an interest. And from an orchard perspective, is, is, is that, is it normally starting from seed or are you starting from sapling? Are you having places where you produce transplants to bring the trees in almost producing crops at that stage or how, how does that work? Yeah, it depends on the crop, but uh, it's, you know, usually going to be from a nursery that you would bring in and plant the tree. And, and sometimes it's uh, one, one species of root and, you know, just used as rootstock because of, various qualities maybe it's maybe it's disease resistance etc and then you have grafted on there the actual you know tree that you want so yeah nursery is big business in in california and, and in other orchard producing areas uh because that's usually how how they get established that, be, that makes sense because it's a it's such a long term to to start from seed yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I was um, just talking to somebody, uh, you know, when last week, I guess, who has he has almonds and walnuts and in almonds, you know, you'll keep in there for about 30 years. And so he said his dad planted their first almond orchard in 90, 97. So they're just now kind of switching that out and replanting the orchard. But the walnuts they planted in 95 and those can go for 50 years. So he's actually never been part of a, a walnut you know, replant yet because it just lasts so long, but, uh, there's a lot of implications to that, right? Like you better make sure you get it right when you plant, because you're not going to get another shot for a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. What sort of, what sort of spacing is between, I guess, I know this is going to change depending on the crop, but what sort of spacing, for example, is there between walnut trees? That's a good question. You know, I actually don't, I, I don't know. You're testing my, my knowledge that uh, I, I haven't really used. <laughs> I haven't used in, I graduated in 07. So it's been, you know, 14 years now. So I couldn't tell you exactly. And I would hate to say something on here and somebody who actually grows walnuts be like, wow, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I, you, you'll know yourself, Tim. You get interested in folk on it. You're just like, well, oh, yeah. your brain. Yeah, oh yeah. Sure. Yep. You just go down the rabbit hole. So I totally understand. Um. You, you mentioned you went into in uh, sales, uh, grain sales mainly there. Yeah. What What was that job like? Did Did you see yourself having a full career in it, or? <clears throat> I did for a while. Yeah, I saw myself yeah. having a career in it for a while. Um, it, it it's like a game, you know. It's there's this whole other world of like what happens when grain leaves the farm and and how does it move where it moves and why does it move that way and it you know it's all in, in our case we, we were called basis traders so basis is how much above or below the futures price uh 
can you pay to actually get grain to come to you? So, so let, you know, in, in a place where there's a ton of grain and not much con, con, uh, consumption, like in Iowa, you're going to have, they're going to pay less than the futures price to get grain because the supply far out seeds exceeds demand where we were in Texas, you know, sort of a demand driven area. And so, you know, those basis were premium. So we would try to figure out how cheaply can we move grain from surplus to shortage and make money in between. So it is, it's like a game and, and you tr- end up trading more bushels than you actually execute on, which is a little bit hard for people to kind of wrap their head around. But, you know, you may, you may trade 500,000 bushels, buy it and then sell it. And then, you know, you just kind of wash yourself out of the middle of it, never actually move it because you just let the buyer and seller trade themselves. But we were also managing facilities. So we were physically taking ownership of the grain and selling it back out. So it was a game, but to get back to your question, I loved the game for a few years. And then at some point I thought, you know what? It's a really fun game. I enjoy what I do for a living, but I kind of want a career that I feel like at the end of the day, like I'm making progress, I'm making an impact and <clears throat> I don't start from scratch every day. You know, it's a, it's a zero sum game, right? So you're, you're kind of starting every day uh, trying to, to carve out more margin. Very fun. Not where I wanted to spend all of my career. So, and don't answer this question if you don't want, is it, is that a, is the way that works from a business perspective, salary plus compensation or yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, commission. Where did compensation come from? Plus commission. Um, yeah, you, it is. Yeah. You know, when you're first starting out, um, it's it's usually just salary because you're not really making the company any money. Um, but as you get going, the the bonuses and the commissions can be pretty substantial. Yeah, and that's that's where most of the money is made. It's it's very very well uh, compensated career in general. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, those guys earn their money though. Uh, they they really do. So. Listening to what you've said there, if you're in, uh, was it Idaho you said this, uh, high supply, low demand? Was, was that the state you said? Yeah, yeah, Iowa would be one example, yep. Oh, it's Iowa, sorry. Um, the, does that mean it's less profitable to produce grain in those areas or no? Not necessarily. So, um, <clears throat> you know, in, in the U.S. context, you know, the, the ground in Iowa, the climate in Iowa is going to produce, you know, your, your high yielding uh, corn. In Texas, if you have center pivot irrigation, you can get some great yields as well, but that comes with, you know, its own costs and, and issues. So, you know, it's also important to keep in mind that while corn may be, let's say, $5 on the futures right now, basis between Iowa and Texas, it may be 50 cents difference. So maybe in Iowa, they're getting 20 cents below the futures and in Texas, they're getting 30 cents above. These are all hypothetical numbers. They're not actually where the market is today would be my guess. Um, So yeah, there is that spread, that difference in, in basis. uh, But obviously it's still, it's still worthwhile to produce in a place like Iowa where you could just put up monster amounts of bushels without irrigation it's it's pretty incredible and as as someone trading that commodity is is there a grain corn wheat soybean is there any that that stand out as easier to trade or is that not really a, a thing 
Uh, well, the easier to trade, the harder it is to find a margin, right? It, it's yeah. kind of like if it was easy, everybody would do it. So, so you know, there are more liquid markets. So definitely, you know, mm -hmm. corn, soybean, <laughs> wheat are going to be pretty liquid markets. And then there are illiquid markets. So illiquid markets are probably more barriers to entry. So you, because let's say you're, you're not even dealing with an exchange with a product like um uh, let's say wheat mids, which is the byproduct of the, of the flour milling process. So there's no exchange for wheat mids and it doesn't correlate with any other exchange. So you've got to kind of make a market out of buyers and sellers, which is hard to do. But if, if you can establish yourself in it, it's easier to carve out a good margin because you've got some barriers to entry. So, you know, they're definitely liquid and illiquid markets. I wouldn't necessarily call them harder or easier though, you know? Yeah, yeah I guess, as you say, the easier... The almost the harder <laughs> because yeah the easier it is you know yeah. the easier it is to buy bushels the harder it is to sell them with a margin because everybody it, there's just so much transparency to that market yeah. <clears throat> and, and just just while we're on on grain there tim what what's the main use for for wheat and barley straws in the states are they going a lot to digesters and stuff like that or are they going on to livestock farm you know, I, I haven't I haven't looked into it in a while. Cellulosic ethanol was was something people got really excited about for for a while, and then it sort of like it it, it didn't seem to be economical in a lot of cases. Um, so I don't think a lot of them are going to to ethanol or or even to digesters. You know, I th I think it's just a really low cost fiber more than anything. Um, but I but I also know you know increasingly more and more farmers are. Um, basically, you know, using them for soil health, you know, not really yeah. getting rid of their straw because it has more value to them long-term in building soil health than it maybe does to actually selling as a low-cost fiber. Yeah, so, so they're not putting it into swaths, they're just chopping out the back of the combines, really. Just, you've got you've yeah. got both, but, you know, sure. it, it, I, it's yeah. it's certainly market-dependent, but the trend seems to be going more, more so that direction. Yeah. No, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, just over here... Um, Maybe not so much in Scotland, but certainly in England, uh, you're 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 seeing a lot of straw just go to digesters, and if it doesn't reach the standards for digesters, it's getting burnt, um, which is a shame. <laughs> it is a shame, uh, yeah. But that's that's the sort of uh, that's that's interesting because we always hear over here, you know, how much more strict the the regulations are on farmers in you know in the UK and 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 throughout Europe than ours are so i'm surprised that that's still a common practice yeah and, and maybe maybe common practice isn't fair maybe maybe that that's a bit of a, a generalization on my part but um there was certainly a period where if it wasn't reaching those standards that was the case now when they're not reaching that digester standards it's probably going forbidden um mm. you know but just just wondering what the sort of output was uh, over with you guys um you and on uh, most of my listeners know uh, I am a lecturer and, and part of the job as a lecturer is trying to get students that have come in really keen to get into industry, the future future of our industry, your future of agriculture, Tim, but they're the future of agriculture in, in, in the sort of the, the broadest term, uh, is getting them a job. And you've sort of went out and from what I understand, this is what AgGrad is. You're the founder of AgGrad and sort of getting people to uh, to agriculture but could you tell us a bit about first off founding a company i assume that's quite a big thing uh, and also what, what you guys are doing sure or where 
Yeah, when I when I graduated from college, I, like I told you, I was I was pretty focused until that point on on working in orchards in California, and then all of a sudden thought, well, I don't want to kind of lose this relationship, and so I, I I'll try to find something in Texas. Um, I was surprised that you know that was 2007, so we had the internet, we had social media. It was still very very difficult to sort of get connected to opportunities and. Part of the frustration was everybody kept telling me there's so much demand for talent in agriculture. There's so many opportunities in agriculture. And then like you go to get a job and it's kind of like you, you apply for a million places online and never hear anything back. And it just was really frustrating. It's like, okay, is it me, you know, or is it, is it something else? And so that stuck with me, even though I did eventually get a job and that was through a personal connection, by the way, it wasn't even through applying online. Um, even though I did, it's always stuck with me. Like that process, there's just, there's, still a gap, right? There's still something just not working. And so as I th went through thinking about what I want to do with my career and finding something that was more impactful and meaningful to me, um, that problem just kind of kept coming up. And, and I validated it with other people who were maybe closer to that situation graduating this year or just recently had graduated. And, um, and everybody seemed to say the same thing, like, yeah, I feel like I know like three or four different opportunities in agriculture. But if I don't fit those three or four, either based on ge geography or based on role, like, I don't know where to go from there. It's kind of like, yeah. it just falls off a cliff. There's just a dearth of no information at all. Anyway, uh, so that's where I thought I'd target with AgGrads. Like, okay, I want to solve this problem. And um, if I could offer one piece of entrepreneurial advice uh, to everyone listening, it'd be this. Just because a problem exists doesn't mean there is a market to solve that problem. And that's where AgGrad ran, ran into problems. It's like, okay, I got great feedback from college students and recent graduates about like, hey, this is really helpful. This is the information I've been looking for. Thank you so much. But when it came time, to like talk to companies about, hey, I need to pay for this somehow, um, got very few takers. So what I ended up doing was I ended up following the uh, very well-trodden path of um, of recruiting, which is, you know, contingency search recruiting, which means, hey, company, if I can bring you the right person, will you pay me a recruitment fee um, and doing that? But but it has its own challenges, right? Then you, you, you're choosing who you serve. I'm ser serving those people I'm filling roles for, not serving this like job market pool that's trying to figure out what to do with their lives. So that's how AgGrad sustained itself for five years was um, I would, I would have the companies pay to help me help them fill roles. And then on the other side, I was just trying my best to help as many people as I could sort of figure out where to go with their own career. Uh, so those, that's the positive and negative. The positive is we, I think we did some really, really great things, uh, for, for college students. The negative is like, it still isn't a really good model that aligns the incentives of saying like, I want to help the job seeker, but they're not in a position to pay for this. I mean, they're, they're college yeah. students or, or recent graduates. So who pays? Um, so, you know, you're getting both sides of the coin here. The, the good part and the bad part of ad grad is, is right there. It's, it's, it's a tricky one that when you've got relationships there of the people you want to benefit and also the people you have to benefit because they're funding you. Right. And, and you, you might find yourself, I assume the big challenge there is, do I keep the companies happy or do I keep the students happy? And keeping both happy is quite a tricky balance. Um, it is a tricky balance. Yeah. And I, you know, a, a student or, or a young professional would come to me and say, Hey, I hear that you're in the business of helping people find jobs. And I have to say, well, that's not really the business I'm in. You know, the business I'm in is helping companies fill roles. 
And yep. while doing so, I'm trying to help people, you know, sort of navigate their own career for themselves. But there was always that disconnect, uh, which which ultimately is the reason that um, in 2020, I ended up selling the recruitment business. I still retain the AgGrad brand, but the recruitment book of business was sold. And uh, the AgGrad brand has been a little bit stagnant for the past year and a half um, while I'm going through a uh, sort of a period of time where I'm, I'm not supposed to be close to the recruitment game contractually. <laughs> Okay. Yep. 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 No, that makes sense. I, I see what you mean. You don't have to say yep. one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, but that that is that that sort of bridging of college to work is, and I don't even mean work. I mean college to careers, university to careers is such a tri- tricky bridge to navigate. Like um, speaking from experience, I know when I left university, I left with a, an undergraduate in agriculture and a BS and an MSc in food security. And I couldn't for the life of me find something in that sector. So I worked with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I'd done some sales, done some management and started to sort of sell myself online through through Facebook and Instagram and stuff and, and got the word out there. The university got in touch with me. So that was sort of me taking that, that jump of, to sell myself. But that takes a lot of confidence. That takes a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of barriers you need to jump even just through that. And if you've got that assistance from someone, and as you say, it's not getting them a job, it's fitting them a rule that's going to work for them. Right. That's a brilliant thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's sort of it's still. I mean, it's still a big problem. It's still so there's so much needed help in that area. It's just uh, it's hard to find a sustainable business model that that can kind of go along with it. But I think what you just said would be my number one advice if anybody's listening and says, "Hey, I want to get in a career in agriculture, but I can't seem to get my foot in the door." Is like try to find. The, the confidence to to put stuff out there in your own way. Maybe it's a podcast like what you and I are doing. You know, maybe it's uh, just writing. Maybe it's videos. Maybe it's just tweets or, uh, you know, may, maybe you're just curating material from other sources. Whatever it is, try to put yourself out there because what I learned over the course of recruiting is more and more companies are looking at, at content sources for potential leads on, on em- employees. It sounds like you kind of had this happen to you. Um, so few people do it. You know, we can probably count on two hands the 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 largest content producers, you know, independent content producers out there in ag. There's not that many of them. Um, so that would be my number one advice to try to differentiate yourself before even getting the job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we we, we hear so many people talk about CVs and writing a CV and stuff like that. I'm I'm currently teaching a, a module that looks at, at sort of selling yourself as a as a career person, as someone that's a tangible asset to a to a firm. And uh, I talk at length about social media. Social media is so much more important than than written documents these days. Yes, the documents are very important, and I'm not taking away from that in the slightest, but it's a massive part of marketing. And every company has a product, whatever that might be, be that a degree, be that an actual tangible product, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, for those that listen on a, a, a sort of weekly or fortnightly basis, uh, Tim has sort of taken, well, the last question out of my mouth, because the last thing I ask everyone, Tim, is, uh, one, where do you see yourself in five years? And two, if you would any tips coming up for people coming into the industry, but we'll get into that because we do that at the end. Um, so you kind of answered one of them, but uh, taking my thunder, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I can come up with something else if you want to keep going. You then, uh, from what I understand, Tim went on to the radio and I think still do that. Uh, I do. Do some reporting. Yep. Could you tell us yeah. about that? First off, how you got into that and two, what you're sort of uh, talking about. <laughs> right. So um, while I was recruiting, um, the way that I sort of 
generated my inbound leads was through creating content exactly what you know you and I just talked about mainly through the podcast but also through writing and then we launched a 30 under 30 program uh, in agriculture for for in the US and through those projects companies started to reach out to me some that wanted me to recruit for them but even more that wanted me to help them do what I'm doing which is bring attention to their brand through content. And I, you know, for months, I kind of said, no, I, that's not really what I do. You know, I, the way I generate all of my money is through recruiting. I need to focus on that. And then, then I took on one project and that led to another project. And before I knew it, I was splitting my time about half and half between recruiting and helping other people make content. And okay. it got to the point where it was like, boy, I need to choose one or the other because right now I'm, I'm sort of halfway doing them both and it's not working so well. So um, I, I figured if I can get a steady gig like the radio, which, which I was doing two radio segments every single day, they're only 90 seconds, but you know how it goes. It, it takes a while to sort of generate the content yeah, yeah. for that. And then um, so I, I got that steady gig and then I kind of took on more and more client work. And before I knew it, I was more in the consulting business than I was in the recruiting business. And that's when I decided to sell the recruiting uh, business and go full-time in consulting. So I had a friend who had a communications consulting firm. I called him for advice and he said, yeah, my, my advice to you is come join us. We'll hire you. And, uh, and you could be, you could do everything you're doing fully off, you know, on, on your own. Uh, you're bringing the book of business. So we're going to kind of let you do your thing, but we'll, you know, we'll provide the back end support and, you know, it, it's ended up being a really good thing. So now I'm, uh, I'm part of Cogent Consulting, which is based in California. And I uh, kind of have my own sort of book of business. And we do mostly what we do is we help um, industry groups communicate with grower members. And so, um, you know, okay. every, every commodity has their own sort of board. And then there's also other kind of subgroups un under those boards or from various, uh, various parts of agriculture. And, and we help them with their communications approach. So that's, that the radio is still part of that. I kind of do the, I'm, I'm sort of a hired freelancer for the radio thing, but then mostly what we do is help um, ag industry groups. And and what sort of, what sort of topics are you covering on the radio of interest? Is there, yeah, is there I do a two, narrative or? Yeah, well, I, I guess over the time, over time, I've done a few different segments. Um, the one that stayed consistently is I, I do one called farm the future, which is basically ag technology here. You know, it's a farmer audience. It, it it's early in the morning intended for farmers that are up listening to the radio at maybe 5 a.m. or something. And uh, it's here's here's what's happening in ag technology. Here's a new, you know, a new invention. Here's a new um, merger. Here's a new offering, et cetera. Um, so th that's really fun. Uh, I've also done a program specific to California agriculture. I don't do that one anymore. It, it just got to be too much handling two at once. So I, I don't do that one anymore. Excellent. And, and with, with Cogent there, um, it seemed like quite a, a, a seamless acquisition for the company to get you on board. Uh, it didn't seem like too much was involved. Um, how how do those really so do you do you work as like a middle person or do you put companies in in touch with growers i've, I've picked that up right and and let them sort of liaise or how does that work yeah it's different for every client but i would say the ge the general gist is going to be something to the effect of you know we uh, let, let's say i'm a potential client you know i'm an organization that growers pay money uh into my organization for it to exist to represent them collectively and hopefully you know grow their demand or help advocate for them on you know in some capacity but and that's what we're focused on but we also need some way to 
communicate back to those growers, like, here's where your money is going. Here's why we're doing what we're doing. And that could be a newsletter. That could be a podcast. That could be an event. Um, there's a lot of different ways to kind of make that connection. And a lot of times it's, you know, it's either grower advocacy or grower education. So where we're brought in is to, to do that. So for example, I'm a part of podcasts for, um, the, the almond board of California and for the U S high bush blueberry council. Um, you know, we do work for various dairy groups. We, we work on behalf of, um, oh gosh, I don't know, well over a dozen different groups, either, you know, uh, writing for them, doing podcasts for them, or sometimes it's a special project. Like they want to do a video series on, on irrigation, you know, it varies. Uh, but the fun part is, is figuring out what is the best approach to get your message across? Who's your key audience and how are we going to sort of position your message in, in the best way possible? And that's kind of, uh, why they hire us. It's just, it's just funny listening to you say the word irrigation coming from Scotland. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of irrigation. Summer, but yeah, exactly. What, what's that? Over the summer, we have a pretty dry, dry burns and stuff, yeah. in fairness. But uh, yeah, as like a constant, it's just it's just funny. Um, slightly jumping back uh, there, Tim, I've fallen victim again to the, the rabbit hole one. But uh, you mentioned a 30 under 30. I assume that's not looking at billionaires in agriculture. But uh, what, what is the focus there? Yeah, we wanted a really diverse group. Uh, so it's it, it is your typical 30 under 30 in the sense that, you know, we chose 30 individuals and, and we kept it focused on the US just so we can kind of manage it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, 30 individuals that are making an impact on the industry in some way. And we made sure we had individuals from six different groups. And let me see if I can remember them all. They were um, uh, agribusness, entrepreneurship, produ uh, producers, so farmers, ranchers, yeah. um, uh advocacy and education. So, um, you know, people who maybe worked in DC or, or worked on behalf of those producer groups I was just talking about, uh, entrepreneurship and sustainability and food security was the sixth category. We kind of combined those two and we got individuals from all six. And I was, I was hopeful. I, I knew about the talent out there for my recruiting, but still the 30 people we ended up with, we did it two years in a row, uh, blew me away. I mean, people I, I wasn't aware of, but I was so excited to help tell their story because they're just doing, you know, huge things. Um, you know, we had a girl who, uh, she's independently from the U S living in Costa Rica and helping, uh, farmers form, form coffee cooperatives throughout central and South America. Um, you know, I mean, I could, I could go, I could, there's 60 people I could choose from sure. all doing really interesting work. You know, we have published authors, uh, we have people who've already exited big business, you know, uh, grown a business and exited before their 30th birthday, um, all over the board. And really, really, it was cool. Not only the quality but the diversity of the individuals we were able to get. If I could figure out, again, this gets back to this, probably going to be a theme of this episode. If I can get, find out who wants to financially support a project like that, because it's a ton of hours. Um, I would love to keep doing it, even though I'm not recruiting anymore, uh, but it is on hold here, at least, at least for another six months. That sounds excellent. And just, just out of interest, do you get any ideas as to how many applied or how many were put forward? Yeah, we had a we had a nomination process where uh, we encouraged people to nominate others, um, which which really helped. But uh, let's see here. Both times, I think we had close to 200, um, 200 people that were nominated. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's it's a lot of time to, you know, it, like everything, it takes more time than you think it's going to. You know, you got to get the word out about the program. You've got to get nominations. You've got to help fill in gaps in the nomination forms. Cause you want everybody to be uniform. Uh, we didn't want to 
play favorites. And so we had a panel of judges. So you have to get a panel of judges. You have to get them their information, help them select. You have to score. And then the work begins of actually, once you have the 30, announcing them and rolling out a whole content strategy around the 30 that, that takes basically the whole rest of the year. Um, It was, I mean, very rewarding, but a ton of effort to to go into something that, you know, was was sort of self-funded. That, that, I mean, yeah, I I get the the financial challenges there, but it must've been very rewarding to meet those folk and see sort of what's out there and young folk that are, are, are changing our industry really. Yeah, and, and also getting back to why AgGrad exists, and this is where, what really excited me about it, is like, imagine if, you know, imagine if we had 10 years of that, that's 300 different people, uh, and we have extensive profiles on each, most of them are all doing different jobs. And so then you're going from, okay, I know the five jobs that I heard about in, in my ag class, to yeah. like, here's, here's profiles of people who are not that much older than me, already doing impactful things in a career I'd never even knew existed. And it's like, that's super, I mean, just, I think that would be really beneficial to me if I were to go back to 2007, graduating college and try to figure out what I could do with my career, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And a little caveat, or well, no, not a caveat, is where we're planning to move this podcast on at the minute for my viewers is if you're wanting to look out um, what's happening in agriculture, Obviously, you're listening to this podcast. There's a lot of really good guests that have been on here. Um, Tim's, as, as I've said, the future of agriculture. Look it up on Spotify. It's certainly where I watch it. I don't know if there's anywhere you would push it more than Spotify, Tim. But um, The stuff out there that is happening in this industry is mind-blowing. The, the only episodes that I probably don't watch is when I fully don't understand them, <laughs> which, which, is, which is silly. They're the ones I really should watch. I should be learning more. Um, but there's so much out there and, and that's the place to watch it. And talking about the future of agricultural podcast, we'll go on to that, Tim. Um, why, why originally did you start it and, and where did the idea come from? You've sort of always, always worked in, I guess, the future of agriculture. You've been looking at students going into industry. You've been doing that yourself and, and on and sort of media through the radio and that sort of thing. But <clears throat> what yeah, guided I- that decision? I became just a huge uh, podcast addict as a listener uh, in, in 2013. And I, and at that point I was kind of thinking, okay, I want to do something in, in entrepreneurship. So I started listening to all the entrepreneurship podcasts and I, I would just, I don't even know how many hours a week I would spend listening to podcasts, but it was a lot. So when I decided to make the leap into starting my own business, starting AgGrad, I thought, okay, the way I'm going to get my name out there is I'm going to start a podcast. Cause at the time there were, there were very, very few, um, this was 2015, very few ag podcasts. And the ones that are out there were kind of really like radio shows that happen to release as a podcast as well. Not really like podcasts in the way that you and I think of them now. So I had the, the fortune of being pretty early on that. Um, but I started the ag grad podcast and I thought, okay, Here's what I'm, you know, my mission is to highlight careers in agriculture. That's an easy premise for a podcast. You know, what's your career? What do you do? What's it like? And I did the first 10 episodes and then kind of reflected. And what I realized was there were two that I really loved and was excited about and other people seemed excited about. And um, it, it kind of had me thinking that maybe I needed to switch direction. Those, those two both had to do with new innovations in agriculture. Um, so it was like new ideas, things that you won't get from reading your typical farming publications that are kind of on the fringes. They're, they're just mainstream enough that it's a real story. Somebody's actually doing this, but 
it's not like widespread yet. So I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. I want to go with that idea. But then I also thought like ag grad is a word very few people have ever heard of. Yes, it's great for branding, but like it doesn't capture the new approach for the podcast. And it's not really, it doesn't tell you what the podcast is about when you hear it. So that's when I changed after 10 episodes from ag grad podcast to future of agriculture podcast and focused only on sort of these fringe, what I call fringe ideas in agriculture, although they're not all fringe ideas, but they're usually not mainstream at least yet. And so, so, so you had that experience of listening to podcasts and, and, and you, you wanted to sort of jump into that and, and it was a, a, a very, empty market at that stage so how yeah. how did and 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 podcasting as as we hear that now is there's literally millions of them who doesn't have a podcast you know right. um but back then it was sort of on the cusp of being big but how how was viewership then uh you know i think it's it started off it start you know start off really modest like anybody's going to start off no, nobody yeah. even knows you exist and so you know the, the what i tell everybody who wants to start a podcast is it's extremely easy to start it's extremely difficult to keep going um because that consistency when people see you're going to show up every week for you know 200 weeks in a row then they go okay like maybe i'll give this a shot it's it's not going to be here one day and gone the next um so the it was modest to start what i will say is I think it was easier to grow from, let's say, 50 listeners to 500 listeners. I think it was easier to, to make that jump probably in those days than it is than it is today. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. On one hand, you have a lot more podcasts. On the other hand, you have a lot more podcast listeners. You know, at that point, it's like mm -hmm. podcast. What, you know, what do I do? It's sort of like, you know, send me the link and I'll, I'll listen to it on my browser, which some people still do. That's fine. But like now everybody's pretty used to using most people are pretty used to using podcast players, whether it be Spotify, Apple, et cetera. Um, so I think it, you know, I, I will say, I think it was probably easier to capture those first like 500 listeners um, back in those days than it is today, because people do have a little bit of this, like, Oh, another podcast type of thing. But you know, here, what I'll say about that is, is number one, the value of a podcast um, building an audience is, is one thing, uh, but it's not the only thing. You know, the, the learnings and the connections, I would put well above the size of, of your audience. You know, uh, you and I probably would not be connecting if I didn't have a podcast and you didn't have a podcast. Right. And so now we have that connection. And, you know, I learned something and I, I know it sounds like hyperbole, but I absolutely learned something every single episode. In fact, if I did an episode where I didn't learn something, I probably wouldn't release it because I'd just be like, you know, what's wrong here? Um, because I've done 200 and I think 80 episodes now. And I, I absolutely learned something every episode. And I don't think I would be learning those things if I didn't have a podcast. Right. And so, um, you know, there's a guy who started his podcast at the same time I did and, uh, Rob Sharkey shark farmer podcast. And he's gone on to like huge things. Like he has a show on RFD TV and he's, you know, he's like a, famous person now and him and i started about the same time doing about this you know about the same thing his is more farm focused than necessarily mine is more whole value chain but like i don't look at him and think oh wow i'm a failure because he has gone on to these great heights it's like you have to put it in perspective what the value of creating content is uh and still in agriculture there are very few people doing it right and so yep. even though there are a lot of podcasts relatively speaking 
Um, if you're out there making connections, learning a lot and finding your own interesting problems that you want to talk about and solve, like that to me is, is a real value. So sorry about going on a soapbox there, but I wanted to mention all that. No, I, and I, I agreed with everything you said, and I want to get into networking side. I do have one question about audience. What, what sort of audience are you seeing? Or is that not something you want to say? I'm just I'm interested. Oh yeah, no, I don't mind. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. I look at it over the long term and try to make sure it's trending the right direction. You know, um, podcast listenership is a bit of a moving target. And that's what whenever an advertiser gets in touch, they're like, okay, well, how many subscribers do you have? Well, first thing, you don't know how many subscribers you have. All you know is how many people download your podcast and kind of where they are, right? Yeah. And so you can think like, okay, does that mean downloads in the first day are important or in the first week in the first month or the first 90 days, it varies. So I will say this, uh, you know, what I look at is how many downloads does each episode get in the first 90 days? And my episodes get at least 5,000 downloads in the first 90 days. Um, it, they can vary quite a bit. <laughs> Some may be like barely getting over that mark and others may be, you know, 40% higher than that, depending. Um, but, but generally speaking, you know, that's where it is today, but man, that's, you know, that's over five years of kind of slow, you know, incremental growth. I would say there was never a hockey stick moment. Uh, maybe for other podcasters there is. Uh, I remember early on, I got Temple Grandin on, you know, who they made a yeah. movie about her starting Claire Danes. I'm like, this, this is it. This is my moment. I'm going to, you know, this is where I'm shooting for the moon. It was, it wasn't, it was a good episode. It was another episode. It was, you know, but it, it really is about laying that trust down with an audience that, you know, ultimately will, uh, will pay dividends, I think. And, and even with advertisers, they're starting to learn it's not about size, it's about resonance. So how how well will my message resonate with this audience, even if it isn't that big? That's what's most important. And, and marketers are finally, I think, starting to understand that. Yeah, like a number can be a number, but it can also be a number with meaning. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you mentioned Temple Grandin there. I mean, she's the mother of animal welfare. Um, right. And I had, the, I had the great honor of seeing her live in Edinburgh. Uh, it was at a seminar when I was at uni. And they... Uh, yeah, what a wonderful mind. But that sort of translating to uh, uh, an interactive guest is a different thing. There's, there's, right. you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing. And every time, and you'll be the same, I'm quite certain, Tim. You you look at bringing someone on. There's that sort of question: is is this story good? Are they going to hold this conversation? You know, there's there's a lot more. You might have someone who doesn't have as good a story, but can hold a conversation and really sell what's happening. Um, that's almost better than a good story. Uh, but that networking soapbox you went on there is so true. I mean, the amount of folks that say to me, oh, I've got, I mean, my figures are nowhere near that. My established audience is about 100 per episode. Um, but uh, so many people say, like, is it not a lot of work? And I'm like, yeah, for sure. But like, I'm gaining so much from this. Right. I, I, yeah, an hour every week I'll be filming a podcast and I'm meeting someone from a totally different world from me and you always learn more than one thing, like a lot of things. It's brilliant. Uh, I couldn't push for doing a podcast more. Like it, you find something you're passionate about, do it. Like, it's yeah. brilliant. And you're going to get people say like, oh, wow, you're another podcast. You're just like everybody else. Well, you just have to ignore those people because, yeah. I mean, frankly, they don't understand the value. If, if, if I was if I found myself without a job tomorrow, you know, the first place I would go look to reach out to people to talk to them are previous podcast guests. You know, yeah. if I, if I was in a, if I was in a role with a new company and they wanted to find, you know, partnerships, 
other companies, the first place I would look are people that were on my podcast because you share this experience with each other um, that that builds more than just a surface level relationship as a result of an hour conversation. I mean, it, it goes deeper than that. Right. And and I can already tell from your interview style, you're the same way. Like you, you will hear something and you will go deeper, which as a guest is great because I don't have to s- stick here, you know, stand here and, and just feed you key messages. We can actually talk about something of substance. And at the end, you know, you and I have a connection because of it. So yeah, I'm, I mean, we're preaching to the choir here, but if you want to really nerd out about podcasts, I'll tell you what you said about story is something it took me far too long to understand. It's like, oh, I don't necessarily need an interesting guess. I need a story that will provide a framework that will drive an episode. And it's it's it takes a while to understand there's a difference between a story and a key message. There's a difference between a story and a guest. And story is actually what's going to, you know, what's going to drive uh, value. And like just just on the one last thing on the network thing, there's the there's an example there. I I now have spoke to you. Um, I met a guy called Jim who was R2Cast number three or four through having heard your podcast. There's that, co- that, there's that sort of trip away connection there. Jim put me in touch with a guy called Douglas Elder who works for a company called IGS, uh, Intelligent Growth Solutions here in Scotland, which is Vertical Farming. They did um, a live show to our students in, in their sort of vertical farming unit. So like that, that's all purely from me just phoning folk on Zoom. You know, it's brilliant. Anyway. Rest, but um have you have you any guests that jump out you've had a lot um and maybe you don't want to say any are better than others but is there any that really pop forward oh boy that's good i i always whenever i'm asked this question i have a really big recency bias you know where i i remember yes, the people who are recently yeah. on and and uh not the ones I did four years ago or something. Um, you know, so I'll go back to the very beginning for one that uh, really propelled uh, what what has become the 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 Future of Agriculture podcast forward because he he gave me the idea of like this is this is what I want. I want to find stories like this, and his name is Lon from from Farm from yeah. Farmland. Um, he was episode you know two or three, and then he we I brought him. I didn't bring him back on. We had a repeat episode later when I, when my wife gave birth to one of our children that I did, I didn't have time to put an episode together, which I very, <laughs> very rarely do, but I did that time. So I think, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the podcast, he's maybe episode 50 something, but anyway, he uh, he's farming 30,000 acres with nine people. And my, you know, the episode was one question, like how, how, how is that? How is that even remotely possible? And, you know, it's through innovation and technology and um, thinking about things differently. And that's where the whole premise of the show came from, uh, you know, is, is, is thinking like, I want to do more stories like that. Like, how is, how is that level of, of production possible? So, you know, that one comes to mind. Um, You know, if I, if I were to think of, gosh, it's so hard because they're, they're pretty diverse Um, other episodes that stand out, um, you know, um, I think uh, we we've done we just did our second episode on drone spraying and is that Rantizo? Rantizo, yeah, Rantizo yeah. was the first one with two, uh, uh, episode two hundred, and then we just did one with Precision AI, which is another drone spraying company yeah. up in Canada. And um, you know, I think that's 
that's an example of of where innovation's actually starting to find really find its footing. Drones we've been talking about forever, and it's like yeah. what are the what's a real application? And I think it's actually starting to find footing. So th- those those two episodes were really fun to do. Um, but man, there's it, you know every single one of them hits a little differently for me. And uh, like I said, I I learn something every time. So it is hard to pick a favorite. But for some reason, those three episodes are sort of standing out. The, the, there's one one of your episodes that stands out to me. I, I've watched it four, well, listened to it four or five times. Is with, oh god, I can't remember his name. I'm sure it's Sam of the Small Robot Company. Oh not yeah, being yeah. Bre- uh, not Sam Watson Jones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yes. That company just blows my mind. I think it's excellent. Yeah, I think there's so yeah. much interesting about them. You know, they, they they're crowdfunded and they've had multiple successful crowdfunding campaigns. And and yeah, I, I think his insight about per plant precision and the ability to to understand and actually do something about what's happening um, on a per plant basis with these small robots out in the field, uh, that's going places for sure. So I, yeah, I hope I hope they're successful because I think I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. That also it also offers the ability to remove tram lines which gives you about 12 percent extra yield it reduces the compaction the only compaction that's happening in these fields right. um, apart from you know uh, which is excellent it's just oh a proper nerd over that company like i've spoke to <laughs> some of the people that work there a few times to try and get them in to see students and on this podcast and it will happen it's going to happen um, oh yeah but yeah that's no you, you'll have met some interesting folk and and the, the, i think the thing that really interests me uh, about yours there, Tim. And I've had people from the States, from Iceland, from the UK, from, make sure I try not to miss anyone here, Canada. There's one other country I can't remember where, but, uh, you know, from, from a lot of places. Um, but some of the ones that really interest me is the ones from Africa and stuff like that. You totally different systems. You know, you're, you're fighting in a microwave and you're working how to make food there. It's phenomenal. Um, yeah, I think there was, there was a, uh, an almond unit in Kenya. I think a guy was called Jordan. Uh, no, um, no, I've got the name wrong. But yeah, the, the diversity that you're showing is so interesting. Um, how, how, how is it funded? Is it purely sponsor funded or? Yeah, I've gone work? through a few different models. So I, you know, I, I, I'm open to uh, taking on advertisers. And so I do that from time to time. But, you know, part of the challenge is like, this stuff takes so much work that it's kind of like, you know, a hundred dollars, hundred is a hundred dollars. That's great. But like the amount of effort it takes to set up a new advertiser and run an ad for a hundred dollars is kind of, it's it sort of, you have to question whether it ends up being worth it in the end. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I only take on advertisers that want to, that want to do at least, you know, six episodes, but really the better way that I found to fund things is finding partners. If there's a question I want to explore and a company who has a vested interest in helping me to answer that question, um, that's worth a lot more to them and it it actually makes it worthwhile to me so for i'm doing okay. two of the, two of those this year one series uh with fulcrum global capital which is a venture capital company and we're we're profiling their portfolio companies um you know i did vet their portfolio companies before i decided to to do the partnership but they were all people that i would love to have on the show anyway and obviously it meets their goals of, of helping to promote the, their companies and their firm um the other one I'm doing this year is called the Tech Enabled Advisor, which every episode is sponsored by a company, but they're not the guest. The guest is one of their customers where we could really understand how technology is being used in the field. That has been much more successful and in demand from companies than I ever thought possible. I thought I would have thought companies would most like to have themselves on to talk about themselves. Well, what I'm finding is the good companies, the ones that actually are doing good for people, 
would love nothing more than to have their customer talk. And so um, I'm actually oversubscribed on that series uh, for this year and thinking about doing something similar for next year um, because that's been really helpful. So that's a that's a full episode sponsorship where they're helping me choose the guest. And, you know, I hope uh, listeners will appreciate that. I, I think that there's value in it, even if they weren't sponsoring. That's, the, you know, that's the balance I'm trying to strike at least. It's, it's, I mean, there's, there's, it's kind of like your theory under 30 there, working on a nomination basis as opposed to a self-application. There's right. no better sale, selling than your customers or someone else saying you're good. You can, right. we can all say we're good ourselves, but you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, it, no one's going to come on and, and just, just lie. Right. I mean, they're, they're going to talk about their experiences and, and that's kind of what, um, that's sort of what I had to talk about with the sponsor. Like, look, we're going to go with wherever the story leads. We're not going to go with key messages, right? I'm not, I'm not here to spread key messages. We're here to find story like you and I were just talking about. And um, everybody's been really cool with that. And I think the end result has been, been really positive for everybody. Well, that's been really good to chat, Tim. Um, it's, it's, as I said, a bit of a fanboy moment for me. Been a big fan for a while, so it's been really cool to have you on. Um, but as I said earlier on, there's two sort of questions I ask everyone. You've kind of already asked the sort of tips for folk coming coming into this industry. Um, but if you had tips for folk coming into agriculture, it was more sort of podcast, podcasting you focused on, uh, what would they be? And also, where do you see yourself in five years? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, for people coming into the industry, um, you know, mine really, maybe the top advice, I think I said the last time it was my number one advice, but this would be up there too, is, you know, really go, go with what your gut says and follow your own interests. Because what I, what I see a lot of, and, and this, I've set myself up for this by calling my podcast Future of Agriculture is, I inevitably have these calls where somebody's like, I'm going into the industry and I want to know where agriculture is going so I can go there first. And it's like, <laughs> okay, but th that may be the wrong question, right? Like maybe let's say you get there first. It's not going to be easy. Um, are you really going to stick with it? If it's really not what lights you on fire, right? If it's really not yes. that exciting to you, probably not because everything is hard at some point, right? Everything is. Um, so you find something that you there you have a maybe a deeper connection to so that you're going to be able to overcome the hard parts and, and stop worrying about you know what's going to pay me the most money uh, where's agriculture heading what's everybody going to say how am i going to instagram this and just start thinking about like what even when it's crappy you know even when it's no fun at all am i going to stick with because i really care that much and, and i think you'll be glad you did excellent piece of advice yeah yeah, if, if something matters, there's going to be hard times. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, boy. Uh, so, you know, in, in five years, um, in five years, I hope that, uh, how do I put this? Um, I, I hope <laughs> to be doing um, more of, let's see, more creating for building a, a brand that I have ownership in, in, in less, okay. you know, in, in less client work, you know, right now I've got three kids. 
I got realities of bills to pay and, you know, client work pays the bills and, and I have great clients. I don't mean to, to say anything yeah. that would indicate otherwise, but in five years, I'm, I'm hoping a lot more of my income can come from brands that I'm, that I'm building and, and have an ownership stake in. Um, and so, you know, that's significant. I'm probably not moving. We love, we love Idaho in the U S where we live. Uh, I've got three kids. So we're, you know, on that front, it's going to be fatherhood living here and, and on the professional front, hopefully, um, you know, building, building a brand that I have some sort of, of, of ownership stake in. And hopefully in that five years, you will have seen Scotland. <laughs> I, I need, yes. Yeah. Let's, let's make that official here in the next five years. I will have been to Scotland. <laughs> Get the hammer down and, and, I, and you and I talked about these ag tech tours. I, I want to, I want to start that in the next five years too. And that that's all kind of one in the same. It's part of building the future of agriculture brand, but uh, you know, I want to have these live events that are not, your typical events with a hotel room and stage. It's a bus tour and you actually go out in the field and it's interactive with a small group. That's, you know, sort of my vision there. Please tell me when that's happening. I need to know. All right. <laughs> we'll have to do one in Scotland. It may be, it may be my best chance of getting out there. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. You might get a paid for it. Um, no, that, that's been really good. Uh, Tim. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for that. Um, it's been great to chat. It's been great to pick your brains as well, actually. Someone sort of in a similar position um one thing i'll say to the viewers guys uh, thank you for listening as i said earlier on um next week we'll get adam henson arguably the most famous farmer in the country uh, so if, if you don't know him tim uh, in in the uk bbc is sort of our like main uh, broadcasting channel uh, and they do a, a program called country file which is all about food and farming and the sort of rural sector it's prime time telly on the friday night is it the Sunday night? I might have got it wrong. <laughs> it's bright time telly anyway. It's sort of that evening time every week. Uh, and Adam Henson is sort of um, one of the figureheads uh, presenters who's been there 20 years last week. So, uh, well, last week from recording this. So hope you enjoy that. And we'll see you, well, next week for that. And then after that, uh, Hazel Mullins is kicking off series two of the R2 cast. She's a vet from Ireland. Looking forward to that much as well. So thanks, Tim. We'll catch you later oh. on and keep in touch. Yeah, thank you. Man, you're a great interview. I appreciate this. Oh, well, I that's that's fun. That's no, yeah, keep it up because, yeah, this this is good. You know, there, there's nothing worse than getting on an interview and then you could tell somebody's just reading questions and, you know, like, here are the 10 questions I need to ask you. It's like, I could answer these via email, but you you really are present and, and engaging and I appreciate it. All right, well, thank you very much. Um, I might even leave that bit in because I haven't stopped recording yet. <laughs> no, leave it in. <laughs> you have a good one.